It was a hot day in the town of Ephesus. The crowds had been gathering for hours, people flocking from all over the countryside, filling the theater in anticipation. You'd think they were there to see a rock star or a popular sports figure, not a wrinkled old preacher who had to be carried into the arena in the arms of his disciples and then could barely speak above a whisper. Though he had been the youngest of the original disciples, now this man was known as John the Aged. But he had been there. He had walked with Jesus from the beginning. From the shores of Galilee to a hill called Calvary, he had witnessed the miracles. He had sat at his right hand the night he celebrated Passover in the upper room. He was the only one of the twelve disciples to stand before the cross and witness its horrors up close. And though he was now almost a hundred years old and could no longer walk on his own power, there had been a morning earlier in his life when he had outrun Peter to the empty tomb. You see, John had seen it all. He had seen Jesus alive with the nail prints in his hands and in his feet and in his brow. He had even been there when the Holy Spirit fell like fire on the heads of the disciples and everyone felt the surge of strength that launched the gospel around the world. In fact, this is how a Galilean fisherman had come to Ephesus, the capital of Asia. How a simple centenarian Jew was now drawing crowds like Chance the Rapper. John had stories to tell about God made flesh. And enormous crowds were all coming to hear him. Imagine being there in the crowd that day. You and everyone around you had read about Jesus. But John had seen him with his own eyes. He had touched Jesus with his own hands. John knew Jesus personally. They were friends. Jesus even called John, or John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now everyone in the stadium is on the edge of their seat. They're straining to hear what this old man might say. But when John John opens his mouth, only six words come out. And they are the same six words that he writes here to begin verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. And apparently this didn't just happen that day in Ephesus, but it occurred often. For whenever the elder John was brought before a crowd, he would always give them the same short speech. Beloved, let us love one another. One of the early church fathers, a man named Jerome, in his commentary on Galatians, tells us that one day after John had uttered his single sentence sermon, a disciple asked him, teacher, why do you always say this? To which John replied, it is the Lord's commandment. And if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. John saw love as the heartbeat of his faith, as the anthem of Christianity. Love was John's watchword. It wasn't Jesus' miracles or his wisdom that impressed John most. It was the Lord's love. And this became John's theme. He saw it as the essence of Christianity. When boiled down to its core, John's message was always, let us love one another. 
1 Corinthians 13 is referred to as the love chapter. Here's how it ends. Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul was the apostle of faith. In the face of Jewish legalism, he was the champion of salvation by faith. Peter was the apostle of hope. He spoke of Jesus' return, indeed, the believer's blessed hope. And if Paul was about faith and Peter was about hope, then John was the apostle of love. God's love for us and our love for each other was John's anthem. There's a Peanuts cartoon strip where Charlie Brown is conversing with Lucy. She says to him, you know what I don't understand? I don't understand love. Charlie Brown shrugs, who does? Lucy's really worked up over the subject. She vents her frustrations. She says, explain love to me, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown replies, you can't explain love. I can recommend a book, a poem, maybe a painting, but I can't explain love. Lucy pleads, try, Charlie Brown, try. So Charlie Brown gives it his feeble attempt. He says, well, let's say I see this beautiful, cute girl walking by. Lucy interrupts. Why does she have to be cute and beautiful, huh? Why can't a young man fall in love with a girl with freckles and a big nose? Explain that, Charlie Brown. Lucy's now extremely agitated. Charlie Brown shrugs again. He says, okay, let's just say I see this girl walk by with this great big nose. Again, Lucy interrupts and she says, I didn't say great big nose. <laughs> Finally, Charlie Brown, he walks away muttering, you not only can't explain love, you can't even talk about it. Well, this morning, the Apostle John not only talks about love, he explains it. He defines God's love for us in the importance of our love for one another. As is our custom, let's read our text in its entirety. Then we'll go back through verse by verse. John chapter 4, verse 7 begins. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, 
because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And again, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love is the believer's birthmark. Let's say a mom has the same facial features as her daughter. We all marvel. Wow, there's no mistaking that girl's mom. Or a son has the same athletic frame as his dad. We say, that boy is his dad's spitting image. When a child shares a parent's distinguishing trait, you're confident that they were born of that parent. And this should be true of every Christian. God's most outstanding trait is love. All true love is of God. Thus, you would expect those born of God to love as God loves. You've heard the phrase born again. It's not just religious jargon or a pollster's category. It's descriptive of what actually happens spiritually when a person becomes a Christian. Like slapping the paddles of a defibrillator on a person's chest. God hits us with his life. God's spirit lands on our hearts and energizes our spirit. He awakens us to his love and plants within us his nature. It's like getting woke to spiritual things. And if you're born of God and know God, His love will be evident in you. From now on, you'll bleed love. But the reverse is also true. Verse 8 reads, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you see a person in need and you don't feel the slightest slightest twinge of empathy, or if you dismiss another person on the basis of the color of their skin or their race, without the willingness to get to know that person personally. If you have no love for the people Jesus died to save, then it's obvious that you don't know God. You're still dead in your sins. You've never been touched by his love. Notice in verse 8, when John tells us that God is love, he's not reducing the concept of God to a mere emotion or force in the world. The Bible reveals God as a person. God has a personality that is capable of a full range of emotions. Love, but also anger, joy and grief, wrath, but likewise patience. Human emotions are nothing but the imperfect reflections of divine emotions. Yet God's dominant emotion, that which lies closest to the surface of his character, is love. It's been said, love does not define God, but God defines love. When you think of it, the observation that God is love necessitates the Bible's doctrine of the Trinity. Scripture teaches that God, that there is one God, and yet that one God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For love to exist, it has to have an object. So for an eternal God to have always been characterized by love, 
there had to have always been someone for him to love. Before time began, before creation commenced, the members of the Godhead dwelt together in a beautiful, harmonious love. Today, for reasons unknown to you and me, God has amazingly focused his love toward us. Notice verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. Notice manifested. The word means put on display. John is saying like a grocery store display that sits in the middle of the aisle to grab your attention. God has put his love for us on display. But where can we see his love? John writes that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Don't look for God's love displayed in a grocery store. Look for it in the womb of a virgin named Mary or in a Bethlehem manger, or growing up in a town called Nazareth. Look for it on the shores of Lake Galilee, or in Jerusalem streets, or in temple courts. Ultimately, you'll find God's love on display on a hill called Calvary, or just outside a garden tomb next to a rolled away stone mistaken for the gardener. God's love for us and the life God offers us is on display in His Son, Jesus Christ. God's plans point to Jesus. His empathy is seen in Jesus' coming as a man. God's wisdom is revealed in Jesus' teachings. His power was on display in Jesus' miracles. His grace was seen in the healings that Jesus performed. His mercy was visible in Jesus' dying and the new life that God offers us was unveiled in Jesus' resurrection. And if you're shopping for a better life, look at God's display. He showcases his love to us in the person of Jesus. You know, it's sad, but often when you come to church, rather than hear of God's love, you hear people talking and bragging about their great love for God. The sacrifices they've made and the gifts that they've given and the extremes to which they've gone. Oh, hush. Verse 10 silences any human boasting. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. C.S. Lewis gives us great advice. He writes, on the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Indeed. Our love for God is nothing compared to his love for us. Our love is a drop from an eyedropper. His love is an ocean. You know, it's been said, love always flows downward. Certainly, my love for my parents is not as deep as my parents' love for me. But neither is my children's love for me as great as my love for them. You see, love always flows downward. And likewise, who among us loves God with a thousandth of the love that he has for us? No one. You see, this is real love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us enough to send his son to die in our place. I love you guys. I really love you a bunch. But I don't love any of you enough to sacrifice one of my three sons. If it were you, Are one of my boys on the chopping block? I'd be nice about it. 
I'd do all I can to get you a good funeral when it's over, but I'm sorry, man. I'd never sacrifice one of my sons. I'd sooner lay down my own life for you than offer up one of my sons. Yet sacrifice his son is exactly what God did for you. There's a clip from America's Funniest Home Videos where a little boy and his sister are walking down the street. They come to a crack in the sidewalk. It's a long step. The crack is a couple of feet deep. The brother easily jumps over the crack, but the little girl stops and she begins to cry. She's afraid to jump. After several failed attempts to reason with his sister, the little boy acts marvelously Christ-like. I'll show you the clip. It's a little grainy, but you'll get it. Isn't that beautiful? But this is what Jesus has done for us. Humankind is like that little sister standing before this chasm called sin. Sin has created separation between us and God. On our own, we're unable to to cross over. But Jesus became a human bridge over which we can crawl to safety. Through his sacrifice, we can now pass from death to life, from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom. Verse 10 calls Jesus our propitiation. The word literally means place of mercy. And in this world, mercy is in short supply. There are many places you can go and find mercy today. Our world is good at meeting out justice and vengeance and payback. But God offers us mercy in his son Jesus. If you need and want God's mercy, there's only one authorized distributor. His name is Jesus. Well, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love for us is infinitely stronger than our love for him. And when we're exposed to such love, we're lifted on its wings. When we receive love, we'll want to show love. You remember the old hymn, when nothing else could help, love lifted me. And indeed it does. Love has an elevating power. Remember a common theme in the old sci-fi films was when the spaceship traveled too close to the hostile planet and it got sucked into its, the, the planet's orbit. Couldn't pull away. Well, God's love has that same sort of gravitational pull. His love pulls us in to his atmosphere. And once your heart has been captured in the orbit of God's love, you'll begin to extend that same love to others. He says, for no one has seen God at any time. For if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. God is spirit. God is invisible to the physical eye. The closest this world ever gets to seeing God is observing his love flow through us. As John puts it, God's love is perfected when we love one another. Once the father of a disabled child was addressing his son's school in Brooklyn, New York, 
the father was in front of the school when he asked this question. Where is the perfection in my son Shea? Everything God does is perfect. But my child can't understand things as other children do. He cannot remember facts and figures as other children do. Where is God's perfection? The audience was shocked by the father's question. The dad continued, I believe that when God brings a child like mine into the world, the perfection that he seeks is in the way people react to this child. The father goes on to tell a story. He says that one day he and Shea were walking through Central Park when they came upon some boys playing baseball. Shea wanted to play too. The dad reluctantly asked if his son could join them. Well, according to one boy, it was the eighth inning and his team was trailing by six runs. Their chances of catching up were slim. They'd take Shea, maybe even give him an at-bat. Well, in the eighth inning, their team unexpectedly scored three runs. In the ninth inning, they scored two more. Well, the bases were loaded when it was Shea's turn to bat. The dad was shocked when these boys, virtually strangers, sent his son up to the plate. The first pitch, Shea swung wasn't very close. That's when the other kids came to the rescue. One boy put his hands on Shea's hands and helped him swing. The next pitch, he hit a slow roller back to the mound. The boys had to point Shea to first base and encourage him to run. And rather than toss the ball to the first baseman, the pincher launched it into right field. Shea kept running. The right fielder threw it to third base rather than second base who then threw it to the shortstop. All the while, Shea just kept running until finally he came home with the grand slam that won the game. And that's when the father telling the story with tears streaming down his cheeks said softly, that day those 18 boys reached their level of God's perfection. See, this is what John is saying. We reach our peak as human beings. We reach perfection. We become all that the Creator intended us to be. Not when we win the game, or when we close the deal, or when we pass the test, or launch the business, or make the discovery, but when we love like God loves. Don't miss what John is telling us. Life as God intended is all about love. Life is more than making money or being productive or even having fun. It's about showing love. It all boils down to love. As the aged John preached, beloved, let us love one another. And then verse 13, for by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. It's God's spirit in us that motivates us to love. You remember in Galatians 5 verse 22, we're told the fruit of the Spirit is love. God's love comes to us in three ways. He speaks it to us. He does it for us. Then he puts it in us. He speaks it to us through his word. He does it for us on the cross. Then he puts it in us through his Spirit. The love of God is proclaimed in the Bible. It's proven on the cross And it is perfected in our hearts. And here's the big question for us. Has the love of God been perfected in you? 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. This old man John, he had seen firsthand God's plan unfold. He understood he was still alive after all these years to testify of one truth, that God had sent Jesus to save the world. And nothing that John had seen in the 60 years since had changed his mind. Even though his peers, the other 11 disciples, had all been martyred for their faith. Even though John himself had faced the wrath of the Caesar and survived. Even though everywhere Christianity had been preached, it was now being persecuted. Nevertheless, John remained unflinching. He refused to back down. Not the emperor in Rome or the Greek pantheon of gods or even the local superstitions. But Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that's what John was so committed to testify of. He says, and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Boy, John sounds so exclusive here, doesn't he? What about a good Hindu or a Mormon or a peace-loving Muslim who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Doesn't God abide in him too? Well, first, before I talk about Christianity's exclusiveness, let me mention its inclusiveness. Did you know that Jesus is willing to save anybody? Did you know that? No one is outside his reach. Not just good people, but immoral people are all invited. Not just religious folks, but secular people can come. While on earth, Jesus courted the lepers and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. His grace made room for the marginalized and the disenfranchised of society. Jesus included people of every background who were willing to follow him. On the one hand, Jesus was amazingly inclusive. But on the other hand, he was definitely exclusive. Hey, God put all the eggs of salvation in one basket. You know, modern society, they hate this because modern society loves options. We love our multiple options. We live in a world of multiple choices, do we not? Crest has 27 types of toothpaste. Can you believe it? Campbell's soup now comes in 53 varieties. You can purchase Tropicana orange juice in eight different sizes. We love our options. Even my dietary staple, Cheerios, can be had now in 13 flavors. And you're thinking, how dare God tell us that there's only one way to heaven when there's 13 different flavors of Cheerios? But that is exactly what he's done. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, and a life, but the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In a cloverleaf world, there's still only one exit to heaven. And the reason God is so exclusive is His love. God loves His Son, has before time began. Yet he loves us too. 
and was willing to sacrifice his only son for our salvation. And now, if he offers salvation in any other way, it cheapens the price that Jesus paid. Do you see that? Multiple choices would diminish the value of Jesus' sacrifice. Any other way to God means that the cross isn't necessary, that Jesus shed his blood in vain. That's the scenario God's love will never allow. God's salvation honors his only son. That's why if you honor his son, God will abide in you and you in God. Verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Hey, the way God saved us forever assures us of his love. Hey, when I say God loves me, I'm not speculating. I'm not just hoping. John says we have known his love. And how? Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and he said, I love you this much. We're confident of God's love by looking to Jesus. He says God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. God teams up with the person who loves. If you want to dance with God, put on a love song. He'll dance with you. God is love. He loves to love. So when we love other people, God sees to it that his love flows through us. Four, he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. God willingly partners with those who love. Verse 17, for love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Jesus was despised, he was rejected, unappreciated for who he was. And as he is, so are we in this world. You know, only when Jesus returns will God's kids be revealed in the glory, in the glory that they have received. Only when Jesus returns will our neighbors and will our friends see us for who we really are. They'll see us clothed in the glory of Christ. Often I hear people say, I just want to be understood. Well, for the Christian, this isn't going to happen for us until Jesus returns. Right now, we're misunderstood. People don't understand what we're about and what's happened in our hearts. In fact, it's on the day of judgment that we'll shine. On the day of judgment, people who don't know Jesus, they'll be ducking for cover. They're going to look for a hole to hide in or a rock to hide behind. Whereas believers in Jesus will stand boldly before God. Can you say that? In the day of judgment, will you stand boldly? This world is frightened by the thought of judgment, but not the believer in Jesus. On the cross, our sin has already been judged. Its penalty has been paid in full. As Christians, we look forward to standing before God. His love has absolved all of our fears. We're assured of his forgiveness, and we stand confident in his love. He says, for there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Verse 18 is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It has set me free from so much pain in my life. Here's a little snippet from my testimony. I grew up terrorized by fear. The kids at our school, particularly on the school bus, 
They picked on me and they called me names. I had big, floppy elephant ears. Kids would flick them from behind until they turned beet red. Who's laughing? You're one of those kids. Eventually, my parents paid for cosmetic surgery to have my ears pinned back. That's why I've got such beautiful ears now. But for several years there, man, I was an easy target. And I allowed the other kids to pick on me. I lacked the courage to defend myself. Finally, I decided the pain of being picked on was far worse than the pain I would feel if I got beat up. So I started fighting back. If anyone crossed me, I'd do my best to punch them out. I'd hit them before they hit me. I went from being a coward to being a hothead. But neither approach conquered my fears. I hope you realize fighters aren't fearless people. In fact, fear is the primary reason most fighters fight, because they're afraid. Once former heavyweight boxing champion Floyd Patterson, he made a revealing confession. He said, I am a coward. My fighting has little to do with the fact, though, I mean, you can be a fighter and a winning fighter and still be a coward. That's what I had become. A fighter can still live his life in bondage to fear. It wasn't until I embraced the love of Jesus that I overcame my fears. I realized the truth of verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Here's how it works. When you're certain that God loves you, that he'll protect you, that he cares for you, that nothing can happen to you that his love does not at least allow, then and only then you have nothing to fear. When you can see your enemy as God sees him and begin to love him with God's love, then God's love for him drives out your fear of him. Love conquers fear. Only the love of God can drive out our fears. There is no fear of failure when you're assured of God's accepting love. There is no fear of people when you're certain of God's protecting love. And there is no fear of the unknown when you have tasted of God's everlasting love. Perfect love casts out fear. The most fearless people on this planet are believers in Jesus who themselves have been assured of God's love. And then verse 19 We love him because he first loved us. This is such a vital verse. For it teaches me that the source of my love for God is his love for me. Hey, what child would love a parent unless that parent had first loved their child? And we don't really love God until we learn of God's love for us. Romans 2 verse 4 drives home this point. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I grew up with the kind of religion designed to scare you into repentance. It was hell, fire, and damnation every week. You'd come home from church on Sunday morning and have to brush the soot off your clothes. The wrath and judgment of God may have temporarily kept us in check, but it did very little to capture our hearts. But when I discovered God's love for me, that's what drew me in. God's love for me caused me to love God in return. Today, when I sense my passion for God growing cold, I recall his love for me. 
And it refuels my love. This is why Jude tells us, keep yourself in the love of God. The key to loving God is to be receptive to his love. And then verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Now, I know it's a scary thought. And I know you may not have considered this up till now. But when you embrace Jesus as your Savior and God became your Father, you also got me as your brother. As the old saying goes, you can choose your friends, but you're stuck with your family. I'm it for you. And you're it for me. Thus, we need to really love one another. How can we come to church on a day like today, sing and talk about the Lord Jesus who rose from the dead to love us infinitely while we sit here holding a grudge in our hearts against someone in this fellowship? Shame on you. It shouldn't be. John concludes, and this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Notice the must. There are no exceptions here. God holds you accountable to love one another. The other guy's color, the color of his skin, his race, his age, his status, his income, his nose ring, his style, his clothes, his hair, his tats, his body odor, his obnoxious habits. Even the college football team he cheers for. They're no excuse. The commandment is for you to love him. Don't run out the door when that fellow walks your way. The commandment we have from the risen Lord Jesus is to love our brother. And so I'll close as abruptly as one of John's sermons with just six words. Beloved, let us love one another. See, it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is all about love. Here among us at Calvary Chapel, may love be our anthem.